Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is uh, Saturday, uh, May 6th, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Later on, uh, we'll be coming up with our Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the continuing security crisis in the Republic of Sudan as talks are underway in Saudi Arabia between the military commanders of the Rapid Support Forces and the Sudanese Armed Forces. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has held talks with Kenyan President William Ruto over enhancing trade in the energy sector. The military leaders of the West African state of Mali have announced the planned holding of a referendum on the future of the country. And the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres visited Burundi to hold discussions on developments in neighboring Democratic Republic of Congo. In the second hour, we look more in detail at events unfolding in the Republic of Sudan. Finally, uh, this month represents the 60th anniversary of the formation of the Organization of African Unity, the predecessor to today's African Union. On May 25, 1963, Africa Liberation Day, more than 30 independent states gathered in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, to formulate a continental organization. In this segment, we present a rare archival interview with Jules Mill on the contributions of Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, the former president of Ghana and the founder of Modern Africa. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program, so stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, in the East African state of the United Republic of Tanzania with music uh, from the International Orchestra Safari Sound. Pule Swahili Rumba. Let's listen in. Thank 
Welcome back. And uh, that was the music from the East African state of Tanzania, United Republic of Tanzania. That was the International Orchestra Safari Sound in the Kule, some Swahili rumba. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, May 6, uh, 2023. And we're broadcasting live studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to start out with our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, for today. And these are some of the headlines in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. A group of demonstrators largely made up of former regime supporters held a protest in the Red Sea capital uh, of uh, Port Sudan, uh, calling for the UN envoy Volker Perthes to leave Sudan before storming his office. Uh, Perthes uh, has been operating from Port Sudan since the eruption of armed conflict in Khartoum between the Sudanese army and the rapid support forces on April the 15th. The demonstration began at the Alumni Club and ended at the Coral Hotel, uh, where the UN Envoy's headquarters is located. Protesters chanted slogans against the United Nations' involvement in Sudanese affairs and demanded the Envoy's departure. Eyewitnesses told the Sudan Tribune that the majority of protesters were affiliated with the former regime, while others belonged to uh, another body of the Supreme Council of Beja's chiefdoms, as well as independent groups. Sources also reported the involvement of remnants of the former regime in the Red Sea state, who had uh, previously organized several protests in Khartoum after the October 25th, 2021 coup against the United Nations envoy. And you can read this article in its entirety over the Pan-African Newswire. Now, the Sudanese Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces have commenced talks in Jada, Saudi Arabia, according to a joint statement released uh, by the United States and Saudi Arabia yesterday. The Sudanese Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces delegations arrived in the Saudi Red Sea city yesterday in response to a joint initiative by Saudi Arabia and the United States governments to reach a ceasefire and bring an end to the ongoing conflict that broke out in Khartoum and some states in the Darfur region three weeks ago. The joint statement welcomed the start of the direct talks between the two groups and urged both parties to consider the interests of the Sudanese people and actively participate in the negotiation process. And in other news uh, taking place uh, across uh, the African continent, uh, in uh, the state of Kenya in East Africa, President William Ruto uh, of Kenya welcomed German Chancellor Olaf Scholz uh, in Nairobi yesterday for the second leg of the Diplomats Africa tour. The German Chancellor is knocking on Kenya's door, seeking clean energy partnerships after Germany had to wean itself off Russian energy imports following the war in Ukraine. Kenya is currently Germany's biggest trading partner from East Africa. 90% of the East African nation's power needs are covered by renewables with plans to fully go green by 2030. Schultz will be visiting a geothermal power plant at Lake Nyavasha earlier today. Geothermal power is key in Kenya's energy mix and offers excellent conditions for the production of of green hydrogen. 
And you're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In the West African state of Mali, people have been digesting the news that there's finally to be a referendum on whether to update their constitution. Uh, That'll be taking place on June the 18th. It's supposed to remove uh, the vast country. It's supposed to move the vast country towards civilian rule after a military junta seized power uh, some three years ago. The referendum in which voters can choose to either accept or reject a draft already contested by political opponents was due uh, to have taken place in March but was postponed. The draft would considerably strengthen the power of the president in it, the head of state rather than the government, quote, determines the policy of the nation, unquote, appoints the prime minister and ministers that has the right to terminate their function according to the proposals. Government spokesman Colonel Abdullahi Maiga made the announcement on state TV on Friday. Armed movements who fought for independence for Mali's north but agreed to a peace deal in 2015 say the draft constitution doesn't take into account the provisions of the peace agreement. Mali has been ruled uh, by the military since 2020 uh, when they seized power against the elected presidency of Ibrahim Boubacar Keita, stabilizing attacks by armed extremist groups linked to al-Qaeda and the Islamic State group. This has been going on now for a decade or more. In 2021, uh, France and its European partners engaged in the fight against uh, the Islamic insurgency in Mali's north. They withdrew from the country after the junta brought in mercenaries uh, from the Russian Wagner group, according to the French. Now, Mali's vast size and skeletal road network makes staging a referendum very challenging, even without the insurgents in the north. And finally, in regard to uh, developments uh, related to peace talks and mediation uh, in the eastern region of the Democratic Republic of Congo, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres has flown to Burundi for talks with his president about the conflict in the neighboring Democratic Republic of Congo. Burundi has contributed around 100 soldiers to a regional peacekeeping force in eastern DRC, just across this border where the DRC's army is fighting the rebel M23 grouping. I renew my call for de-escalation, appeasement, and restraint. Armed groups of all kinds, local and foreign, must lay down their arms in the Democratic Republic of Congo, unquote, said Guterres. He said this earlier today after he arrived in the country. Eastern DRC is rich in rare minerals that are in demand across the world. The wealth on offer has encouraged many rebel groups to form and try to seize the mines from the government. It's resulted in many years of conflict and forced over a million people to flee uh, to other countries. And with that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding uh, this segment of our program, uh, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. And African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most 
pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website, and uh, that's at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, May 6, uh, 2023, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And we'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back with more of our program for this week. I don't make up I and I mind to go through the same thing like I and I for parents not true. No, people die. Cry, blood, Africa. Cry, blood. Cry, blood, Africa. Cry, blood. Right,
trouble Africa cry. track entitled Cry Africa Blood, and uh, this is the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, May 6, uh, 2023. Uh, we are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move into uh, reviewing some of the recent developments in the Republic of Sudan, as you heard in the Pan-African Newswire segment. Uh, there are talks currently going on uh, between representatives of both uh, military structures, the Rapid Support Forces headed by Mohammed uh, Hamdan Gallo, uh, better known as Hameti, and the Commander General of the Sudanese Armed Forces, Abdel Fattah El-Burhan. Uh, that's taking place in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. We'll give you some uh, information about uh, developments over the last few days uh, in regard to the situation inside Sudan and its international implications. Sudan's warring generals invited to peace talks after fighting kills at least 530 people since mid-April. More than 100,000 have fled their homes. How likely is a new peace initiative to succeed? This is the first story. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Imran Khan. Just over two weeks of fighting have plunged Sudan into a humanitarian crisis. Hundreds of people have been killed and thousands injured. Many more have been forced from their homes. The conflict is a power struggle between two one-time allies, the head of the army, General Abdul Fattah al-Burhan, and the leader of the paramilitary rapid support forces, Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo. South Sudan has brokered the latest truce, inviting both sides to talk while they lay down their weapons for a week. We'll be discussing the prospects of this initiative with our guests, but first, this report from Alex Beard. Fleeing in the back of an overcrowded truck, Sudanese families make the long and difficult journey to safety across the border into Egypt. We left Khartoum on Wednesday. It was very difficult. There were 28 of us. The boys don't have visas, but we kept them with us. 
Our suffering is unprecedented. We left in the middle of the fighting, clashes and even artillery. It was very upsetting. This is the human cost of the conflict. The United Nations says at least 100,000 people have left for neighbouring countries, a number it's warned could rise above 800,000. People coming from Khartoum who are escaping the war and trying to find safety and security arrive here under very difficult circumstances. Some people who have passed through here don't have food. Some are sick and some are very old. For more than three weeks, the army and the paramilitary rapid support forces have battled for control of Sudan, with both sides violating ceasefire after ceasefire. Countries in the region are hoping this latest truce, brokered by South Sudan and due to last seven days, will hold. The UN has said if Army Chief Abdel Fattah al-Burhan and RSF leader Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo refuse to negotiate, they risk international isolation. Aid agencies are scrambling to help, but say there is a shortage of funding and supplies. The Secretary General dispatched Martin Griffith, the emergency relief coordinator, uh, to uh, the region uh, to explore how we can bring immediate relief to millions of people whose lives have been turned upside down. The UN and our, and our partners are doing our best to reboot the humanitarian response in the country, Mr. Griffith said. And as you'll recall, massive looting has displaced most of our supplies. We're urgently exploring ways to bring in, in and distribute additional supplies. The Sudanese health ministry estimates hundreds of people have been killed and thousands injured. And only 16% of Khartoum's medical centres are still operating. People are running out of food and water, there are frequent power cuts, and more and more families are making the tough decision to leave their homes behind, in search of safety across the border. The UN is warning that if proposed peace talks don't resolve the conflict, the humanitarian crisis in Sudan could spill over and spread across the region. Alex Baird, Inside Story. For more on this, I'm joined by our guest in Nairobi is Niagara Tutpour, South Sudan researcher at Human Rights Watch. She's a former paralegal for South Sudan's Ministry of Justice and Constitutional Affairs. In New York, Bakri Eljak Almedni, a professor of public policy at Long Island University, Brooklyn. He co-founded Front Against War, a publication on Sudanese politics. And also in Nairobi is Stella Agara. Africa governance analyst who focuses on development security in East Africa. A warm welcome to you all. I'd like to begin in New York with uh, Bakri. We have an extension to the ceasefire. Uh, it hasn't held for the last six days, but there's a potential for uh, both parties to get around the table and talk uh, over the next seven days. There is this kind of optimism, but just talk us through what the issues are, the underlying issues are between the two sides. Uh, good, uh, good afternoon, and thank you for um, um, hosting me. Let me start by, um, you know, pass my warm condolences to the fallen and, uh, you know, wishes for um, speedy recovery for those who were um, injured. Uh, I think the issues are deep. Some of them are structural. Uh, let's just go back and say uh, in 2017, uh, when al-Bashir decided to um, completely uh, become a, a very personalized dictator, uh, he broke away from his own Islamist party and NCP, the National Congress Party, and he uh, allowed the rebel support forces to become a quasi-independent army within the state. Uh, 
those things really uh, created a lot of um, disagreements and uh, protest uh, from the high uh, leader, uh, um, the generals of the Sudanese army, even some of them were have to be, uh, you know, asked to resign because they protested uh, allowing uh, uh, an army or militia to be part of the state, but but not really following any of the procedures. So that's a, that's a deep structural uh, issue that you could point to uh, going back to 2017 when Bashir decided to create a law to allow Robert support forces to be an independent standing army that is not part of the Sudan armed forces. That's the beginning of the issue. Recently, uh, we know that uh, Robert support forces and um, General Degalu, uh, as a leader of, unique leader of this militia, um, he's deeply invested in gold and, and he's doing a lot of trade. Uh, they are estimated that his net worth at this point is somewhere between six to seven billion dollars. So um, we know uh, in order for uh, Degalu business to continue to flourish, he needs power, he needs to be protected, and he has been using the state as a facade to uh, get access to these resources. We also know Sudanese armed forces are deeply invested in a lot of economic activities. They are estimated that about 82% of Sudanese uh, public sector is controlled by the um, Sudan armed forces investment. Uh, so we can see there are some competing over interests, there is competition over power, and the last uh, straw that really broke the camel back was the conversation that took place in December. Uh, there has been a framework agreement uh, developed after a long conversation, and regardless of how people think of the framework, but it brought the issues of control uh, to the front. Uh, some of the discussion has been about how do we go about creating a one army with one leadership, and who has the right to be in charge. Uh, uh, RSF and uh, General Degalu asked to be allowed to have 10 years for his um, militia or rebel support forces to be functioning as an independent under his right. sole control. Right. And Sudanese army refused, rejected that proposal, um, and they were saying it has to be two years and it has to be under one leadership. And that Bakri, means uh, that, General That's a very interesting start. point. Bakri, that's a very interesting point. I want to bring in uh, Niagoa here, who is joining us from Nairobi. Um, South Sudan has been a very key player here. It's got everybody around the table, or at least potentially uh, around the table. But does it have any sway? Does it have any influence on these two very powerful and very entrenched and very independent organizations? Uh, thank you for including me in the conversation. I think it's been very clear over the last many weeks that um, South Sudan and Sudan are joined at the hip, socially, politically, and also economically. Uh, now, the fact that South Sudan was appointed as IGAD mediator is a reflection of this um, uh, relationship. Uh, since the crisis broke out uh, in April, in mid-April, over 30,000 uh, people, um, some of whom are returnees, South Sudanese going back to South Sudan, uh, and other nationalities, including Sudanese, have entered the South Sudan border. Uh, so South Sudan gets to play an essential role. Um, now, with regard to influence, um, like I've said, uh, the two countries have social, political, and economic ties. Uh, the South Sudanese government, since the fall of the Bashir government, has also gotten very close uh, with the Sudanese uh, military government in Khartoum. Um, and this is what is reflected in the appointment of President Kiir as mediator. Now, 
South Sudan has a role to play individually and also as part of the African Union, as part of the regional uh, block uh, of the Intergovernmental uh, Organization on Development, and as part of the international uh, body, uh, whether as part of the Security Council, but uh, as a member of the international community. Um, it will be important for South Sudan to stress on the war, on the two warring sides, uh, to emphasize on civilian protection, uh, to ensure that they end the use of weapons uh, such as mortars, artillery shells, um, yeah. and many rockets that are that have wide radius and are too inaccurate and are being used in uh, uh, civilian neighborhoods. Um, they'll have to emphasize um, on uh, the Sudanese uh, uh, leaders as well as um, all the other countries that are involved uh, in mediate, in conversations around this crisis, whether individually to uh, Burhan um, or Hemeti um, or uh, to other, other countries the need for ensuring safe access for civilians, uh, to allow civilians to evacuate buildings, right. to access medical attention, and to also, even as a country as South Sudan, to ramp up uh, uh, its own humanitarian support um, uh, to prepare on how they will receive this vast numbers of people who are right. entering a country that has had a very huge uh, 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 humanitarian crisis in the last many years. Well, let me bring in Stella Agara here, who also joins us from Nairobi. We've been hearing a lot about this interna uh, internal government uh, dialogue um, group. We've also been hearing a lot about the African Union. Do you think that those two organizations, those two, are the, the real players here? Or is it going to be something like the United Nations or an, an even broader international uh, coalition to actually kind of bring peace to Sudan? Uh, thank you very much for having me in this conversation. Um, indeed, I think those two actors who have been brought in are some of the key actors in the conversation, of course, led by, by um, South Sudan. Uh, the previous speaker spoke about the, the, the strategic position of South Sudan, but also the fact that South Sudan depends on Sudan for oil refining and a bit of, of some of their trade. So they are squarely placed to be able to have the interest of ending the conflict and also the interest of driving uh, Sudan towards uh, some form of a resolution. Uh, the Africa Union, initially as the OAU had a non-interference policy, but now as, as the Africa Union, it has a policy to interfere in nations anytime when they meet to secure the interests of citizens, to secure the lives of individuals in, in the continent, and so they play a, a very huge role. The AU Commission actually has, and, and the AU itself has a Department of Peace and Security that works and, around the issues of, of conflict around the region, and so they are squarely placed in, in that conversation too. To guide um, uh, the conversation and in the event that there's a need to send uh, peacekeeping missions from around the continent, they will then be the ones coordinating the peacekeeping missions coming from the different countries. Uh, neighboring uh, uh, um, Sudan. Uh, IGAD has a very critical role because it plays the role of promoting regional uh, uh, um, regional coordination and integration amongst the countries that are its members. Sudan is one of the members. The neighboring countries of Sudan who are now receiving uh, uh, refugees and the displaced people from Sudan are, 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 are at the center of this conversation. So IGAD comes in critically to influence the conversation in terms of trying to bring the interests of the region together ensuring that the member countries are on the table, even in the conversations that are being held about the kind of humanitarian services the country needs, the kind right. of support that citizens 
in the in, in the event of the overflow. So these three actors that have been brought to the table truly deserve to be on on the table. There are other actors who've been brought in through the expanded mechanism uh, that has been created, uh, and I've seen members of the. Uh, uh, Russia, the United Kingdom, America, uh, China, etc. And of course, they are coming in based on, on, on other interests, but it is important to keep this conversation very deeply African to ensure that then the issues are addressed here first before any other external interests are brought into, into play. Well, let's bring in Bakri um, from New York. You've heard our guest in Nairobi actually say that, you know, this has to be an African thing and perhaps the African Union is the strongest, particularly if it can offer a peacekeeping mission. Are you confident that the African Union can play that role or do you think it does need to have a wider international role? The UK, Russia, China, America, the United Arab Emirates, for example? It, it's actually, I think the idea of allowing and, and, and empowering AU to be part of solutions in Africa, I mean, going with the, uh, the model, African problems, African solutions, is, is, a, is a noble and wonderful idea. Uh, um, I have to be uh, frank and say I'm, I'm very skeptical about the possibilities of um, AU or EGA actually being able to play any mediation role. I do understand uh, EGA countries have a stake in the game. Uh, these countries are going to be uh, affected, and they are affected right now. Uh, we're expecting about more than 200,000 of Sudanese, Sudanese refugees in the north. They will be going south. That's going to be uh, an, an added crisis. Ethiopia has more than 300 refugees living in Sudan. They might be going back. So we, we do understand EGAD countries do have a uh, uh, stake on the game. We do understand AU has been trying to really uh, play like a, a major role in addressing some African issues. But let's just go back to the basics. Uh, what leverage do the African Union really has on those two bipolar parties? Uh, if you really think about it, it will come down to what influence do they have. The food will is fine. Having people talking about we want the world to stop is fine. Everybody has been calling for the world to stop. But let's just be honest. AU has no leverage over these warring parties. AU has no capacity. It has no mechanisms of, of maintaining peace. It's, it's nothing more than just a goodwill um, hunting, in my opinion. So, yes, it's something to be um, appreciated. It's something to be um, uh, we have to always welcome those ideas coming from African brothers to try to address African issues. But the issue lies among the, the four, the Troika, it's the U.S., U.K., Saudi Arabia, and Emirates, simply because they have been in touch with those two parties, and they have right. influence over them. We all know Degelu is, is funded and supported uh, by Bakri, I'm gonna, Bakri, I'm going to disturb you there. I'm just going to disturb you there, because I want to bring in uh, Niagar Tutfor. Uh, listen, uh, Bakri says that the... African Union in the EGAD are their noble ideas, but they're just not going to work. And this needs to be a much broader international coalition to put pressure on the two warring parties. Do you think the African Union is a noble but flawed idea? Look, um, I will take a leap from the South Sudan peace process uh, over the last many years. It takes a village uh, to achieve, because um, the main goal here is to ensure civilian protection and at the end of the day, accountability for all the abuses being committed currently and over the last few years of the transition. Um, so the whole international community does have the responsibility uh, to ensure that the Sudanese crisis does not spiral out of control to the point that it also still 
spilled over to regional uh, states such as South Sudan, Ethiopia, Chad, uh, elsewhere. But also each, each country individually and as part of the collective has specific roles to be played. Um, and so that's why I keep emphasizing that even, even if South Sudan may not have as much leverage as the U.S., they might, ha they might be able to influence uh, the two parties, especially in ensuring that, you know, civilian protection is a priority and that even the calls of the resistance committees um, uh, and the various protest movements uh, take center stage uh, where we know that peace processes can often be elitist. It will take a village, it will take several efforts, it will be a costly process uh, financially, politically, and also socially uh, to the Sudanese and their neighbors as well. Uh, so it will take everybody to be able to use whatever access and leverage they have uh, to ensure that security provisions, uh, civilian protection, accountability and justice are at the center uh, of how the international community chooses to address this crisis and that they do not right. fail the Sudanese people again because what we're looking at is the failure of the international community to deliver on the promises uh, of the revolution that was delivered by the Sudanese people. Uh, Stella. You've heard two very different opinions there. One very diplomatic opinion uh, from uh, Nairobi, another perhaps stronger opinion on the African Union from our guest in New York. Do you still think that the African Union, EGAD, these are the two best mechanisms after hearing those two opinions? I think, first of all, I need to point out that it is very unfair to say that the African Union does not have capacity to intervene in this conflict. In the places in the continent where the African Union has not intervened, it is because they probably did not take interest in the conflict, but not because they didn't have capacity. As a matter of fact, they have a mandate, they have capacity, they have the ability to intervene, they have intervened in conflicts before, some election-related, others uh, that are related to other factors, including cross-border conflict, and they continue to do so until today. IGAD has also played quite some role in, in, in some of the negotiations in the continent in dealing with conflicts, and so they are centrally placed. For me, one of the questions I'm asking myself is what do we define as leverage in this conversation? Leverage is the ability to, be able to understand, understand the terrain around, around uh, Sudan. Leverage is the ability to understand the geopolitics around, around Sudan. Leverage is the ability to have access into Sudan without being uh, treated as an opponent. And for me, the fourth and most critical factor in this conversation, which is what I want to remind all of us, is that leverage is the ability to be that person who's not, to be, who's not seen to be a contender in this conflict. We already have information that there's there some external influence in, in the conflict in Sudan, and we have to make sure, and it is extremely important for, ma for matter matters of peace and security, that even as the as this resolution is being, is being uh, discussed and negotiated, that the people who instigated the conflict or the people who are behind the conflict do not then get opportunities to continue to fuel uh, the conflict some more by virtue of bringing in their interest into the conversation. We already have some serious hardline positions from both fighting parties, and so bringing in actors who are going to embolden or, 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 or even strengthen some of their, their hardline positions is not going to help this conversation. Um, there, there's also the, the, the dynamic of actually being around their neighbors who all have interest and therefore are deeply interested in seeing peace in South Sudan. 
in terms of the question of who is going to be able to negotiate in the place of, of, of South Sudan against international interests, I think African countries and the AU itself is even also well, well positioned to that extent. They may not necessarily be, the most, be having the most leverage as far as resources are concerned, but at least in terms of finding a solution, I think they're the best place to lead a negotiation process. Uh, Bakri, uh, what we're hearing is that there is the African Union, there is EGAP, these are the, the frontline organizations that are going to deal with any kind of peace, but we have to talk about the region as well. Egypt probably has, in fact, has a very different idea about what it wants in Sudan to, say, Chad, for example. Chad has a different idea to the other neighboring countries. There's a lot of competing interests here. Is there anything other than stopping the conflict that these people can agree on? I, I tend to be one of those people who really think it's, it's, there is a way of addressing uh, different uh, neighboring countries' interests, uh, at the same time uh, talking something sustainable, not just solving the conflict, because let's just be honest, solving the conflict at this point in time is not going to address Chad or, um, or Wagner, the Russian, or as we, as we speak, uh, we know that there are uh, trucks carrying over 10,000 uh, loaded uh, fuel. Uh, this is supplied from Shafter in Libya to uh, RSF uh, forces. This is a guardian brought the story the other day, and there are evidence on the ground this is happening. So what I'm saying is, I don't think we can ignore what um, the concerns Egypt has raised. Uh, Egypt has uh, been uh, a very influential country in Sudan. They have a very strong ties with Sudanese military. Uh, and they are going to be one of the countries that really will influence what's going on in Sudan. And, and it's not just about Sudan and Egypt. Egypt is, has deep interest in the, uh, the Nile. Uh, there are some standing issues regarding the, the great dam in Ethiopia, uh, how, we, how the dam is going to be run, the war in Ethiopia is connected to what, what I'm trying to say. What's happening in Sudan is not uniquely a Sudanese issue. It's a regional issue, and if we don't really find a way to thread the needle in how we address these different concerns and interests for the neighboring countries, Egypt, Ethiopia, uh, South Sudan, Chad, uh, Libya at the same time, we will be back on, on this issue at some point. If not in Sudan, it's going to be in Chad. If not in Chad, it's going to be in Central African Republic. They are really complicated, uh, connected um, issues. Some of them com competition over resources. Some of them is competition over influence. And, and, I, and I tend to, um, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not really positive if regional players alone um, can really and, and spread and, and, and rob this. This is uh, well, let me, uh, let me it's, it's an interesting point. Let me bring in uh, Niagoa here uh, from Nairobi. Um, you've heard what Bakri had to say. It is very, very complicated. There's a lot of countries, a lot of com different competing interests. However, you know, uh, what Stella was saying is that perhaps the, one of the things that could happen is a peacekeeping mission, African Union peacekeeping mission in Sudan. But the danger of that is, is it's almost like a plaster. You don't actually deal with the underlying issues, the regional issues. You just send in a peacekeeping mission and that kind of freezes the conflict, conflict but it doesn't really actually sort out the issues. Do you think that's a danger? I think uh, if, where, if, by all means uh, we have to avoid bandage solutions uh, to a crisis that has very deep roots um, and where uh, uh, the underlying uh, causes have not been addressed. 
uh, now with the Juba peace process, uh, the Sudanese Juba peace process, uh, we all know that the security arrangements that were put in place as well as aspects around civilian protection were never rolled out and were thrown underneath, uh, underneath the surface. Um, and so as, as of now, and what we're seeing internationally as well is lots of disjointed statements and multiple actions left, right, and center, but really there's no coordinated diplomatic effort on how to go about addressing the Sudanese crisis uh, uh, as a whole. Uh, so this is something that needs to be emphasized and that public statements being made by multiple uh, countries um, have to have a, a a unite, there has to be a united front in how the Sudanese crisis will be addressed because, as Bakri says, the impacts extend beyond the borders of, uh, uh, of Sudan and they will have regional impacts. For the South Sudanese example, you know, the humanitarian crisis is one thing, but also the impact on markets that rely on Sudanese goods um, and will have an impact on food, food insecurity in, in South Sudan. So there will need to be high-level, credible, coordinated diplomatic efforts and to really address the underlying causes and to bring civilians at the center, the resistance committees, uh, uh, the various movements that have been... Sorry, uh, Neva, we are running out. We are running out of time. And I do want to come back to one final question. I guess are there other guests in Nairobi? Stella, Stella, there are two very powerful individuals here, Abdul Burhan Al Fattah and Hamidi. These are people who aren't really going to speak to each other across the table unless they're going to sign something. Do you think you can deal, that the international community, the regional community, the African Union can deal with those egos? In, in all honesty, I am one of those who has really admitted that uh, their egos are too big and at some point they may need to be pushed to make certain decisions uh, um, for the benefit of the citizens of, of, of Sudan. Um, these big egos are, do not add any value into the conversation and it's extremely important that the interests are put on the table and that those, those interests are then assessed based on, on, on the merit of what can be delivered within a short-term period, what can be delivered within a long-term period. Um, whatever it is they're interested in must and will be delivered in the body of a nation that has a government that has, a, you know, proper uh, uh, governance going on. Otherwise, they will continue with fighting and destroy everything in the country and not add value. So for me, in this conversation, what all the actors must convince these people to do is, number one, to get them on the table, number two, assuming they will not speak to each other, at least to get their factions to begin putting considerations of what is possible within a short time and what is not possible within a short time. I think also an understanding of what they will be accountable for if this conflict continues as it is, is extremely important. And, and for me, if it means uh, um, even you know, calling out the possibility of litigation after after this whole process is, is, is completed is extremely critical because then even if they're engaging in war, there are certain laws that govern uh, uh, how they engage in war, right. we have the international humanitarian law, etc., that they have really flaunted. And, and so it's extremely, extremely important that then they are brought on the table to understand this, to understand that women, youth, and children must be protected even as they engage in whatever... Um, conflict they want to engage in, and that they cannot plan to have a protected then their neighbors depend on them for trade, for, 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 for other factors, yeah. including routes that are used within that country to get things done in, in the region. I want to thank all our guests.
uh, Niagoa Tutapur, Bakri Eljak El Medni, and Stella Agara. And I want to thank you too for watching. Now you can see the program again anytime by visiting our website, aljazeera.com. And for further discussion, go to our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. And you can also join the conversation on Twitter. Our handle is at AJ Inside Story. From me, Imran Khan, and the whole team here, bye for now. Welcome back. That was a report on uh, the development in the Republic of Sudan. Is peace uh, possible? And uh, we're going to hear another panel discussion, but you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, May 6, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Well, let's listen to another report, uh, panel discussion on Sudan and its relationship to the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia, uh, where uh, some 60 years ago, the Organization of African Unity, and later named the African Union, has its origins. Uh, this year, we're commemorating the 60th anniversary of the formation of the Organization of African Unity, now the African Union. And the African Union Secretariat uh, headquarters and its various organs are still based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Let's listen to this report on Sudan and Ethiopia. They share a border and the Nile River, but as Sudan is embroiled in a bloody war, Ethiopia is concerned about the security situation. What are the risks of a spillover? And can Ethiopia play the role of a mediator, as it's done in recent years? This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Imran Khan. For decades, Sudan and Ethiopia enjoyed strong economic and political ties, but recent developments have strained relations between the neighbors. A border dispute sparked by land claimed by both sides threatened a potential conflict last year. And Ethiopia's billion-dollar hydroelectric dam on the Blue Nile has been a source of tension for years. And now, with widespread conflict across Sudan and refugees crossing into the border with Ethiopia, some are questioning if new alliances will be formed. We'll look into that with our guests shortly, but first, this report from Katia Lopez-Horiang. The unrest in Sudan could have wider political implications in Ethiopia. As fighting escalates, regional ties could shift. When Ethiopia's Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed met Sudan's General Abdel Fattah Burhan in January, problems were brewing in Khartoum especially ahead of plans to transition to a civilian government. Abiy Ahmed, who had previously mediated political deadlock in Sudan, said he would not intervene. My message for all of you is to prioritize Sudan, to prioritize the people of Sudan, and to draw your own solution for your problem. As um, you know, political at the time of turmoil and crisis, requires tolerance and compromises. Since then, the unrest has unraveled between the army and paramilitary rapid support forces. 
some analysts believe this conflict could give an advantage to Ethiopia on several issues. Among them is the Afashaga border region, a contested area claimed by both nations. Then there's Ethiopia's Renaissance Dam on the Blue Nile River. The multi-billion dollar project has led to a dispute with downstream countries. Khartoum worries the dam will reduce the amount of water it receives from the Nile River. The controversy has led to alliances. Sudan has partnered with Egypt to push for a binding agreement with Ethiopia. Now, after weeks of violence, many question if new ties will develop to garner political leverage. Both Sudan and Ethiopia have seen conflict in recent years. Sudan has hosted about 50,000 refugees who fled the fighting in northern Ethiopia between government forces and Tigray rebels that ended last year. But now it's Sudan that's again seeing waves of people leave, as the power struggle further threatens its security and political future. Katia Lopez Obayan for Inside Story. Let's bring in our guests here in Doha, Aisha El Basri, researcher at the Arab Center for Research and Policy Studies. Uh, she's also the former spokesperson for the African Union. In Virginia, Itana Dinka, assistant professor at the James Madison University. He focuses on the political history of Ethiopia and Africa. A warm welcome to each of you. I'd like to begin in Doha first uh, with Aisha El Basri. Aisha. This is going to put Ethiopia in a very difficult position. It wasn't that long ago in March in Doha that there was some optimism that there was going to be movement on the issues between the two countries, between Ethiopia and Sudan, particularly when it came to the border disputes. But now that's gone out the window. So where does Ethiopia land on this? Uh, does it have a favored person that it, fa that it wants in this war? Is it remaining neutral? What's going on? Well, uh to, to answer the question, we have to put the, uh, the situation in, in, in a context, in, in the international context, but also in a regional context. Starting with the international context, the war, um, the ongoing war between uh, the, the, the uh, Sudan Armed Forces and the Rapid uh, Support Forces um, has, uh, has been basically managed by, by the U.S. The, the crisis uh, is being um, hardly uh, managed by the, the Washington, which is trying to uh, pull the, the, uh, the, the parties to the conflict to back to the negotiation table. So far, there, there are some good signs. Uh, because the Washington insists that it's going to, uh, to compete with, uh, with China and, and Russia, and that Sudan is a geostrategic uh, point that it cannot afford to lose. And it has many other interests, economic, but also linked to the war on Ukraine and the, uh, the, the, um, the Wagner factor in, in, in Sudan. So for all these reasons, Washington is committed to um, finding uh, a way of going back not only to, uh, to, to the negotiation table, but going back to the political framework uh, agreement that has been adopted by most of the parties. So this puts us in, in, a, in a situation where Ethiopia, which is a, a pro-U.S. government, has to take into consideration this, um, this leadership. 
the second factor is the regional context. And the regional context, let's say it's favorable to settling the, not only the, the, the situation in Sudan, but also helping the relationship between Ethiopia and Sudan uh, uh, to, uh, to, to, remain, to remain on track, on a peaceful track. Um, if you, you have, of course, you have noticed that um, the, the regional context has been marked by a tendency to go to um, negotiate the, 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 the problems and, and uh, uh, settle the disputes, whether it's in Libya or in Chad or even in, in uh, the Central African Republic. The situation on that border has come down, and Washington and its allies, um, you know, they are committed to keep that 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 calm, that uh, that political settlement ongoing. Right. On, on the other side, you have also the situation with um, with, with other countries, especially with. Uh, Egypt and, and, the, and, and, and Ethiopia. Here we have an issue. We have lands and borders that haven't been demarcated. But with Ethiopia, I think the situation between Ethiopia right. and Sudan have advanced, has advanced uh, quite well, and they have reached a settlement uh, that has been uh, confirmed by the visit of uh, Abiy Ahmed to, to Khartoum in January of this year. Uh, let's bring in Itana Dinka here. Uh, Abiyah Ahmed has actually, as our guest just said, uh, been in Khartoum. Things were going very well. And then we're in the situation that we're in right now. Where does Ethiopia, I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked Aisha, where does Ethiopia land on this? Does it have a dog in the fight? Um, the position where Ethiopia is located regarding the, the ongoing conflict in Sudan depends on its uh, domestic issues and some uh, regional issues. Uh, one important issue uh, that brings um, Sudan and Ethiopia together is this uh, uh, land, uh, very fertile agriculture land disputed for decades between the two countries, Al-Fashaga, uh, which uh, during the Tigray War, uh, the Ethiopian Prime Minister uh, invited uh, General Al-Burhan to Addis Ababa. Uh, the details of their discussion was not clear from what appeared then, but later, in relation uh, to the, the public news that appeared um, weeks after Al-Burhan's visit to Addis Ababa, Al-Burhan replied uh, to those news uh, in public that uh, Abiy Ahmed, the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, asked him to take over Al-Fashaga. That might have happened because by then the Prime Minister wanted to encircle Tigray on all sides including on the side of um, on the side of Sudan but now with the uh, um, war in Tigray coming to the conclusion people may think the war and conflict in Ethiopia is over and and the problem is now only in Sudan but that is not the case uh, there is a changing dynamic within Ethiopia which um, makes the relation between the two countries complex in relation to this particular issue um, of, of Al-Fashad. Recently, Addis Ababa moved to integrate regional forces into the National Army, which did not go well in the northern Amara region. A good half of the soldiers in the Amara region integrated into the National Army, but a large number uh, of soldiers uh, reportedly turned rebels. 
and now operating in the border uh, between Ethiopia and Sudan and in, in, in many parts of the Amhara region. Just a few days ago, a senior political uh, leader in the Amhara region uh, was gunned down um, by this uh, rebel. So uh, everything is not under control of Addis Ababa right now because mm. Addis Ababa is in a, in a fight with regional forces regarding this uh, territorial issue. Uh, but I don't believe Addis Ababa wants a fight um, with Sudan on this issue, although it wants to um, uh, possibly retake um, uh, uh, the Al Fashaga agricultural land. But actually, that accelerates the war. If uh, they take over Al Fashaka, they seize this opportunity that now Sudan is in chaos and Ethiopia moves into, into that area. It kisses goodbye to any Ethiopian mediation and it will prompt a prolonging of this war. Is there a danger of that actually happening, do you think? Well, unfortunately, uh, there's always a potential for, of, of, for uh, some some incidents to uh, to uh, to go uh, over control out of control. Uh, it, it, this is a possibility that one cannot rule out. But what counts here is that uh, the central government, the uh, Abiy Ahmed, seems committed to uh, helping Sudan uh, move forward uh, from this this war. It has actually a vested interest in in helping Sudan to to sort out the the conflict. And instead of adding to to to, uh, to the situation another conflict, um, because as you as you said and, and as you said po pointed out, the uh, agreement that has been reached between the the, the, the government, the uh, Ethiopian government, and the Tigray Liberation Front uh, seems um, seems going quite well. So uh, Abiy has every interest in in keeping that that peaceful environment going on and, and going back to normal. He's trying his best to control these uh, factions on the border um, and other factions, and that's what counts right now. What mm. counts is the, the position of Abiy Ahmed. Abiy Ahmed has made uh, clear signals and he made clear statements to Sudan that he's not only willing to, uh, to, to, uh, to help, but uh, he's pushing for an African uh, solution to African problems. He, he's offered his mediation, and that is a sign that he's, so far he's in control. This said, the uh, situation can deteriorate if some groups decide to, uh, to sabotage the, 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 the situation. Uh, Atana. We're talking about mediation now, right? We're talking about the fact that Ethiopia could be a key player, perhaps much more than Washington, perhaps much more than the UAE, perhaps much more than any of the other partners. It shares a culture, it shares a border, it shares the, the, the Nile River. So it could be, and it has been in the past, but it also feels like that there's, Ethiopia doesn't really have any leverage right now. And when you're negotiating with two parties, that's the key thing that you need. Does it have any leverage? Um, Ethiopia may have uh, some leverage in this regard, but at the same time, it's not um, uh, good uh, to forget Eritrea, another important player in, in the region. I'll come back to that. Uh, but. Uh, 
Um, again, I'll, I'll return to a regional issue that confronted Ethiopia and Sudan over the past two years during the Tigray War. The hope of Addis Ababa, particularly the, the government of Abiy Ahmed during the Tigray War, uh, was that uh, by um, handing over al-Fashada to uh, Sudan, it would be in control of everything in relation to Tigray, particularly to um, make uh, Tigray encircled and sealed on, on the western uh, side. Um, that would even make refugees not to uh, cross the border into the Sudan. That did not happen. As we know all, uh, thousands of refugees uh, made it to uh, Sudan. And Addis Ababa complained multiple times, although uh, not formally, um, through multiple uh, media that Sudan might have been helping the TPLF during, during the war. And now, uh, there is the issue of Eritrea. Uh, Eritrea also, uh, the, the, the president of Eritrea also at some point showed interest to mediate before the outbreak of the war between political forces, including the differences between uh, the civilian um, political actors and the army as well as RSF. It seems that Khartoum uh, declined uh, the uh, invitation, the, the interest from uh, Asmara. Uh, in, after uh, the Isaias uh, 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 showed this interest and got not uh, accepted on this, he invited um, the RSF commander to uh, Asmara. The details of what they discussed and what they talked about the issues in Sudan is mm. not yet clear, but it seems like uh, it seems uh, that Asmara is behind um, behind Dagalo's um, position. I am raising this issue for, for a reason. Because Western Tigray, uh, in addition to Al-Fashada, Western Tigray has a border with Sudan again, uh, because Sudan has a very long border with Ethiopia. So Western Sudan, uh, Western um, um, uh, uh, Tigray is still uh, partly under the control of Eritrea. Uh, Amara forces are also operating in the Western Tigray uh, region. Amara is, and the, uh, Eritrea is not out of Ethiopia yet. So um, Eritrea too has a leverage. Now, in relation to the experience between Addis Ababa and Khartoum, um, the leverage of uh, Addis Ababa is not very much strong. The only leverage it has is that it has ended the war in the north, and it is at a more stable position than it was two years ago. And in this regard, uh, it, it may have some ability to bring together uh, the two forces, not alone, but with yeah. the um, support of international forces like United States. Uh, remember uh, that the, on, uh, in the uh, negotiation between the Tigray Liberation Front in northern Ethiopia and Addis Ababa, the United States government was a key player. It's harder. You make a very important point. You make a very important point. I want to bring in, in uh, Aisha here. When it comes to leverage, Ethiopia doesn't have a huge amount, says Itana. That's giving other countries the ability to come in and to use their influence. What does Ethiopia need to become the key player once again, as it has been in the past? What, is it, what does it need to do? Well, let me go back to, uh, to Eritrea because it's connected. Uh, first of all, the, the, uh, 
the, the mediation, the issue of mediation has been decided. I think it's, it's been determined that uh, the, uh, the mediation is going to take um, uh, the form of EGAD. It's, it's EGAD that is, is going to, uh, to facilitate the, uh, the mediation, and it's under, of course, the framework uh, of, under leadership of the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. So if you take this, is, this has been confirmed from um, official sources in, in Sudan from both uh, the Al-Burhan and Hamidi's uh, sides. And that, that leaves us with why Eritrea and Ethiopia um, don't seem to have the, the leverage, none of them actually. Uh, Eritrea um, has showed some inclination to Hamidi to rapid support forces, as your guest has pointed out. And also, Eritrea has showed some inclination towards Russia. Uh, let's not forget that um, there has been a rapprochement between Moscow and, and Asmara, and there has been some talk about uh, Asmara might be offering Russia um, uh, the possibility of, uh, for, for uh, establishing uh, a naval uh, base uh, in, on, on the Red Sea, which is a red line for, for Washington. So uh, this is amazing. Aisha, I'm just going to disturb you there. Sorry about this. Our third guest that we wanted to bring you earlier has actually, we've actually managed to get a hold of her. She's in Port Sudan. Uh, Dalia abdul Momin is a political commentator. Uh, she's in the middle of trying to evacuate her family from Sudan. Uh, Dalia, just before we get into tonight's uh, topic, Godspeed to you, and I hope you can get your family out. But just describe the situation. Just describe the situation that um, you're seeing in front of you right now. Um, well, I'm trying to utilize any all routes that I can take, whether it's one of the evacuation flights or the the Saudi-operated ferries. But it's proving a little bit difficult because um, for the Saudi ferries, we need a visa, but. To go through the whole process uh, center to get to get the visa and to apply is proving to be quite problematic simply because of the large number of people trying to apply as well. And the evacuation flight is just a matter of potluck if we'll get accepted to get on one of the flights or not. Right now I'm at the airport trying to see if I can get my immediate family on one of those flights. So, well, Dalia, thank you for joining us from such a, a, a troublesome situation as well. I wish you luck uh, with it. Now, we are talking about Ethiopia. We're talking about its uh, potential leverage. Both our guests uh, in Doha and in Virginia have suggested that there isn't a huge amount of leverage uh, that Ethiopia has over uh, the situation in Sudan right now. Would you agree with that? I think every single invested party in what's happening in Sudan has, a, has leverage over the two, over both the RSF and the army. But the, the issue is, the question is, is it in the best interest of the people, of the Sudanese people? And at the same time, we do need this leverage. We do need the, you know, the added pressure, the arm twisting that will come from the player, the invested players. And the, there's also the, the other issues like, let's say the state of Ethiopia, Ethiopia plays a part and you'll have people who will say no, this is, the, you know, this goes against the best interests of Egypt and the army because the, the Egyptian, the Egypt and the army, you know, they, they see eye to eye. And then if you get the Egyptians involved, then people will say, no, the RSF will not accept it. So it's a very complicated matter. It's not, it's not black and white. But at the same time, for us to move forward, for us to have to bring an end to this current conflict, but all parties who are somewhat invested in this country need to really apply 
pressure, proper pressure on both the RSF and the army. But uh, Dolly, do you think that uh, Ethiopia's role in particular uh, is useful right now? It has been in the past. It was only just in March, actually, where there was movement uh, in Doha from both sides, Sudan and Ethiopia, about uh, the border dispute. Uh, that, that's all gone out the window now. So where do you think uh, Ethiopia's usefulness comes in? Is it still that kind of player? Or, as our other guests have suggested, this is now much more about all of the regional players and what, there isn't one real power that can bring this conflict to an end? I mean, Ethiopia and Sudan are very much intertwined. I mean, in terms of our, our history and our relations and... I think in the, in the best interest of all countries in the surrounding area, and those especially the ones that border Sudan, it is in everyone's best interest that this conflict is brought to an end. And we'll just, I guess, when it comes to politics, there's no clear cut. I mean, I can't tell you this is the right way or that this is the wrong method, but at this moment in time, I, I'll just keep repeating it. We just need to bring more pressure. You know, we need to push more, especially the international... Uh, international arena, the players, they just have to really pressure both sides, whether it's the Saudis or the Ethiopians or the Egyptians or the Americans or the UN, whatever entities out there that can have an influence on, on both Himitsi and Burhan, it will be welcomed it's by me, of all people, because we can't continue like this. The, the devastation, the humanitarian aspect of this crisis will be tenfold, and then will, there will be a spillover, and no one wants that. Let me bring in Aisha Al-Basri, who's joining us uh, from Doha. Aisha, you can hear it in Dahlia's voice. You can hear the panic, the stress. She's trying to get her family out of, um, uh, out of Sudan. She's trying her hardest to be able to do that. Oftentimes, we forget about the human side of this when we're talking about potential negotiations or potential leverage. But here you have somebody, uh, uh, somebody who's a crucial political commentator within the country telling us this needs to come to an, an end now. But these, these talks, they're not happening right now, are they? That's the problem. Well, uh, I, I mean, the, fir the, the, first, the fact that uh, both parties have agreed to go to uh, most probably to Jeddah uh, to, to discuss, to go back to the negotiation and, and discuss the, the, the issue, it's a good sign. The other, uh, the other issue is, is Ethiopia's leverage, as, as we discussed. It, Ethiopia has two points that go against it. First of all, uh, I think it lacks credibility uh, when it comes about uh, the African solutions to African problems because the solution it, um, it, it chose to, to settle the, uh, the, 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 uh, the conflict with the Tigray was a military. So what kind of message uh, uh, Abiy would, would, would be uh, you know, sending to the world when, when he's talking about a peaceful settlement when himself chose to, uh, to, to, uh, to fight the, the, uh, the, the opponent? The second factor... Aisha, Aisha, sorry, we are running out of time. And I do want to come to our other guests as well. Very quickly, Etana, um, the talks are going to happen. Both sides have actually agreed to that. The location, the format, uh, the timings, all of that is in, and needs to be negotiated. Are you hopeful that these talks will bring conflict to an end quickly? Um, I hope so, but hope um, um, should be related to what is going on on the ground. And let me bring in one international issue, uh, the role of China and Russia, especially when uh, such conflict is, um, um, is brought to the table in the United Nations. Uh, during the Tigray War, 
Russia and China were consistently um, standing behind Addis Ababa's position and uh, pushing back the Western uh, efforts to end the conflict in Ethiopia. The end product of that kind of dynamic was African Union was empowered because China repeatedly uh, proposed that this is Ethiopia's internal issue and no one uh, needs to get in. Sorry, Atala, we, we are running out of time. We are running out of time, and I do want to come back to Adali. Adali, you've heard what our guests have said, uh, that there are several aspects of this conflict. With all those players, with all these people, do you think any kind of negotiation, any peace talks, are going to help you and bring this situation to an end quickly? I think this conflict can be brought to an end quickly. I'm assuming that's the question you asked. Uh, but it depends on those, you know, part, the outside parties. Do, is, is it in their best interest that it's brought to an end? It comes down to that. And if it is, how do they play out both sides? They can appease both sides. Because neither of these two guys want to lose or want to come out, you know, not the victor. So how do you appease both sides? And how do you make sure that this appeasement is for the best for the country and for its people? And that's the conundrum. And I think it's a very hard equation. It's a very hard factor that no one can really work out because they played them off of each other for so long, it's now reached the point where who's going to come out, who's going to emerge victorious, so to speak. Uh, Dahlia, I want to thank you for joining us under such extreme uh, circumstances. And I also want to thank Aisha Al-Basri and Itana Dinka. And I want to thank you as well for watching. You can see the program again anytime by visiting our website, aljazeera.com. And for further discussion, go to our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. And you can also join the conversation on Twitter. Our handle is at AJ Inside Story. From me, Imran Khan, and the entire team here, bye for now. Welcome back. And that was a uh, panel discussion on the current security crisis in the Republic of Sudan. And if you want to uh, read more, just go to our website at the Pan-African Newswire. That's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our final segment on Africa Liberation Day right after this.
legendary Elmore James from, of course, uh, the blues, rock and roll, rhythm and blues, whatever you want to call it, genre of music. Uh, the legendary Elmore James with the track entitled Rolling and Tumbling. And, of course, uh, later on this month, we'll be commemorating the 60th anniversary of the formation of the Organization of African Unity, uh, which later became the African Union. The OAU was formed on March tw- on May 25th of 1963, and uh, the African Union, uh, some several years later, nearly 40 years later in 2002, uh, was formed, transformed uh, from the Organization of African Unity to the African Union. And uh, we're going to focus on one of the uh, prime figures uh, in modern Africa, the first uh, leader of government business, uh, prime minister and president uh, of Ghana and later the Republic of Ghana, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, uh, the founder of modern Ghana and the founder of modern Africa. His research assistant, uh, Jules Milne, was responsible uh, for the editing of uh, many of his books uh, from the time of Ghanaian independence uh, in, in 1957 up until the, the time of his transition in 1972, uh, which is some 51 years ago, just this last past week on April 27, 1972, is the day in which Dr. Kwame Nkrumah transcended. And, uh, of course, we're going to listen to Jules Milne, uh, an Australian national, British national, uh, she talks about her uh, meeting of Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, and particularly uh, this interview focuses heavily on the post-February uh, 24, 1966, Central Intelligence Agency-led uh, coup d'etat against uh, Nkrumah. And uh, let's listen to this uh, important, rare archival audio file uh, featuring Jules Milne talking about Dr. Kwame Nkrumah. My name is Bragba Oyote, and uh, I have the privilege of uh, having this conversation with uh, June Mills, a lady who's done a lot to preserve African cultural history and of the, some of the important works of uh, Osajipo Dr. Kwame Nkrumah. When and how did you meet Kwame Nkrumah? Well, it goes back a long way. In fact, I'm celebrating my the Golden Jubilee because it's 60 years ago when I met him in the year of independence. So Ghana's celebrating so am I here in London. Yes, I met him towards the end of 1957 at a Commonwealth conference here. He had asked to meet me because um, he was embarking on his second book, I Speak of Freedom, and he needed a research assistant and so on to help select suitable speeches and excerpts of broadcasts and things to go into this second book. And um, my husband had worked for Nelson's, which published his Nkrumah's autobiography that also came out in 1957. So he asked my husband, you know, if he could think of anyone, and um, Mm -hmm. said, well, his wife was a historian and had written some history books and so on. She knew about publishing processes. And so he phoned me up from Accra. Oh, he phoned you? Yes, Mm -hmm. from from his office at Flagstaff House. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We were living in Edinburgh then. Um, and he knew, you see, that we'd spent three years living in 
what was then the Gold Coast. We both lectured at the University College of the Gold Coast. So he knew that I knew something about the country and its history and so on. So anyhow, he phoned me up and said he was coming to a Commonwealth Prime Minister's Conference in a few months and would I um, like to consider working on this um, second book? And um, if so, we could meet, you see, when he was in London. So, of course, I immediately said, yes, I'd love to do that. So that's when I first met him. So why in London? Why in London? And how, how was the meeting like? Oh, well, it was terrific, really. He was staying at the Grosvenor House Hotel. Uh, the only time he stayed there, I think after that, he always stayed at the Ghana High Commissioner's place. But he was staying there at that time. And there were a lot of people waiting to see him. We were in some sort of big room there waiting to meet him and um, so yes it was <laughs> quite electrifying really because I, I knew a lot about him of course being a historian and, and having been in Ghana and so on and um, but his actual presence is really quite something I mean it's the it's it's perfectly true, this charisma he had. This charisma he had. Oh yes, yeah. tremendous impact he had. Well, he, and yet such a modest person. He came in with one or two Ghanaians, you know, that had been at the meeting, I suppose. And everyone stood up. There were about 50 of us there, actually. Um, various people from different walks of life waiting to meet him. And he just smiled, you know, and said, why don't you sit down? So we all, he, he dispelled the formality straight away. Um, anyhow, he went round greeting these people, and Van was with him, my husband Van, um, and apparently, according to what Van told me, he suddenly said, where's June? Because, you know, his books were top priority with him, and he, he really wanted to get on with meeting me, but anyhow, he came over, and um, he drew up a chair as, as close as you're sitting there now, really, <laughs> and his first question was, tell me all about yourself, you see, and I, I was a bit sort of flabbergasted, I didn't know where to begin, so he said, uh, he helped me out, <laughs> he said, um, you studied history, you're a historian, I said, yes, and he said, which university did you go to, and I said, London, and he said, oh, thank God, it wasn't Oxford or Cambridge, <laughs> you must be a radical, <laughs> so that really broke the ice. He liked the fact that you went to the University of London. Oh, yes, he yes. thought I must be a radical, yes. He, he, he always hated what, these sort of Oxford accent stuff that people right. put on sometimes. Yes. He couldn't stand that. But anyhow, no, that was um, a bit of a joke. But he said, I've got to you know, speak to a lot of people here. Can, I'm having an informal lunch in a room next door. Can, can you stay for lunch? We could talk it over. Just myself and you and Van and my secretary Erica Powell at that time just the, the four of us and so that's where we discussed it and so on and that's, that was the beginning really of well the long association with his publishing books and so on until he died in fact in 1972 so not only was he somebody who had great charisma that affected yeah. people when they saw him but I also yeah. had this gift to put people at ease. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, I saw it very much at close range in um, the Conakry period, mm. um, where it, it was extraordinary, really, the, the effect he had there. Um, some of the, when he first went there, some of the um, cabinet ministers and secretaries government, you see, came to meet him because, you know, he was 
um, co-president of Guinea. Yes, you were. Yeah, well, Secretary wanted to step down and make him president, mm. but he only accepted to be co-president. Mm. Anyhow, they came to greet him, and I, I had a desk at the end of the long veranda in his place where his office was, you know. So I used to see these people come in and hear them, what they said, and I can remember vividly one of them saying, um, how do you like, would you like me to address you? Should it be um, president, doctor, or a sedifo? And there was a slight force, and Krumah smiled, and he said, my name is Kwame and Krumah. <laughs> I thought that was so <laughs> typical, yeah. Yes, indeed, yes, mm. indeed. So let's go back to the actual work of publishing his books. Yes. First you do the I Speak of Freedom. Yes. And then subsequently, how did the relationship develop as the... Well, before the coup, there was a, a marked change, you see, in, after the coup. But going back to before the coup, um, his London publishers did his books. Who his publishers? Well, Thomas, Thomas Nelson and Son. Uh, that's the company my husband worked for, first of all. Uh, and then... Uh, to clarify that, your husband worked for Thomas... Thomas Nelson and Sons, they yes. Published they published his first book, um, first major book, mm -hmm. uh, which was his autobiography, and that came out at Independence, as you know. Mm -hmm. It was actually, pub you know, um, published on that day, formally, in Accra. Mm -hmm. um, they, and then, after a few years, my husband moved to Heinemann Educational Books, and so Nkrumah wanted to keep um, Van as his editor. Right. They got on very well on a personal level as well as a professional level. And so he switched to Heinemann mm -hmm. after that. So before the coup, there were these two London publishers. But the big change came after the coup, right. you see, when um, um, it was a disgraceful thing, really. But at the time of the coup, um, the two London publishers, I should exempt my husband here, he wanted to resign, he was so furious, but they decided they wouldn't um, be publishing any more of his books, you see. I think it was a commercial decision. Yes, yes because they sold a lot of textbooks in Ghana. And they, frankly, I think they made, they made a very... Um, a great mistake, really. They thought nothing more would be heard of him. Anyhow, he probably wouldn't be writing any more books, so it wasn't that important. But my husband was furious. He wasn't in a top position. He was their overseas editor. But the, the board, you know, decided, no, um, we, if we publish anything he might be writing, they didn't think he would, actually. Um, then probably our books won't sell in Ghana, our textbooks won't be sold in Ghana. So anyhow, he was dropped by then. And um, of course, one of the first things he started to do in Conakry was to, to write a Dark Days in Ghana about the Ghana coup. And so it was necessary to find another publisher. So we roll, we roll forward to post 66 then. Yes, yeah. And uh, there is the coup. Nkrumah mm -hmm. now lives in uh, Conakry as, uh, as co-president. Co-president, And yes. he wants his work out. Did you think that his, his writing was very important to him? Absolutely, mm -hmm. yes. One of the first things he, he did when he arrived at, uh, in Guinea mm -hmm. um, was to set up an office. Um, and Secretary um, closed the Ghana embassy. You know, at the time of the coup, he was so furious about mm -hmm. the coup in Ghana. And made all their equipment there um, their desks, their typewriters, all that sort of thing available to Nkrumah, which was moved then right. into his um, residence at Villa Silly. Mm -hmm. 
and so he he was really able to establish a sort of office routine very quickly within a few weeks in fact he'd got it going mm -hmm. so there was a a new focus in his writing after after 66 yes yes i would say there was the first book he wanted to expose the what was behind the Ghana coup right. um, because he realized well everyone did I think who had any political awareness that it, it wasn't an uprising of the Ghanaian people it was an organized um, military coup which in those days was commonplace I mean there had been 22 or something 25 probably um, between well, before the before, before the Ghana one right. yeah it was, it was getting a sort of routine thing so easy to carry out just a few military and police people in the capital and the, the country's yours, you know, it was easy in those days. But he wanted to expose the, um, the external and also some of the internal forces behind it because there was an opposition in Ghana who didn't like his radical policies and so on. So there was a mixture of the two but that was the purpose of that book and uh, he was writing, he was at his desk within weeks of arriving in so as soon as he got to Conakry, Conakry. he got busy. Yeah. He wasn't sitting there in the corner. No, 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 certainly not. No. And uh, secretaries and cabinet ministers really called on him all the time. I mean, when they left the country on a mission, when they came back, they reported, you know, so he was a head of state. You know, they had terrific regard for him in Guinea. So the people in Guinea really, really welcomed him. Oh yes, um, I think there was this um, love of Ghana really because when they were in a tight spot, you know, when they said the famous secretary said the famous North, you know, to De Gaulle, mm -hmm. they, Guinea would not be joining the French community. They were very stuck because the French really were, were very mean. They even took the electric light bulbs out of things. They took everything away with them. And Guinea was poor, um, so they were in a spot and. Nkrumah was in a position where he could arrange for a, a, what was supposed to be a loan, but it was a gift really of 10 million, I don't know what, whether it was dollars or what, what, but anyhow, it tided them over and I think the Guinea people never forgot it. And of course there had been the Ghana-Guinea-Mali Union before then, so they, they felt tied to Ghana in a way. No, they were terribly proud to have Nkrumah in their country. So now, with in, in terms of uh, your work as his publisher. Mm. How tell us a little bit about mm. uh, the setting up of panel publication. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, yes. Well, I have mentioned that uh, you know he was stuck for a publisher after mm -hmm. the coup. So uh, when he'd um, done the manuscript of Dark Days in Ghana, I was out there by the way in in June. Yes, he he arrived in Conakry in March. I was okay, out so there the in June. Was in February '66. By March he was in Conakry. That's right. And you were there? In June, yeah. Okay. Because he was already... Um, and also you see that his book, Challenge of the Congo, was in process of publication at the time of the coup. And he wanted to do a new preface for that. So he, he sent for me that um, in June. And so I was out there. Um, yes, he was going... The, the question of a publisher was a, a problem because... Um, there was literally no company so he asked me to find out what it would cost to set up his own um, publishing company um, 
because he realised, I think, that if he'd been dropped by Heinemann and Nelson, there wouldn't be another UK publisher, because he was not supposed to be in power anymore. <laughs> Total underestimation of his political stature, but never mind. That was very common in those days. Um, so I found out it only cost £100 to s register a company. In that case, if you know, you can print. You couldn't print a book here without having a company name to put on it. So it was his idea, he said, well, register Panaf Books, call it Panaf Books. That was a very typical choice of title, wasn't it? So the little company was registered, and um, it only involved myself and Krumer. And Douglas Rogers was very useful at the time, because he had a small office in Fleet Street. Right. He was the editor of Africa and the World, mm -hmm. a very well-known magazine that the Ghana government during Nkrumah's time had established in London to give news of what was happening in Ghana and in the rest of Africa. It was called Africa and the World. So that's where I operated from. Shared a desk actually with the treasurer of, of Africa and the World magazine. And it was an attic room, just one room, yeah. at the top of um, 89 Fleet Street. Okay. Yeah, okay. so that's how it all started. So yeah. between uh, 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 so after '66, your visits to Conakry now will be regular because he's writing so much. Yes. Okay. Tell us a bit about that. <laughs> that the number of times you went there, the oh, well I, I went found the situation, mm -hmm. how it was like, how you mm -hmm. coped with everything. Mm -hmm. Just you know. Mm. Well, between 1966 and 1972, and he died. I went 16 times. 16. Yes. Yeah. It worked out about every two or three months, really. The rate at which he worked was phenomenal. He wrote a lot then. Never stopped, really. Um, uh, apart from the books he wrote then, which are some of his most important, I think. Um, he was writing pamphlets as well, you know. Um, he was never happier than when he was at his desk and so on. Unfortunately, with the uh, people that travelled with him to the Hanoi mission, um, you know, when the coup took place in his absence, um, were secretarial staff. Uh, it was a, quite a big entourage he had on that mission and they all remained loyal and went with him to Guinea so he had secretarial help yes they all went there was about some joined him later I can't tell you the number but it was quite an impressive number how included his own cook you see which he always traveled with a, a few secretarial staff photographers and so on and I owe a lot of the photographs I've got during that period to the cameramen that went on that mission you see and they stayed with him unfortunately their film ran out after a while and they couldn't replace the equipment you know in Conakry but I've got some lovely photographs of that period which um, wouldn't have happened without these loyal people that followed him there they were offered um, you know they fell back to Accra if they didn't wish to remain with him but they wanted to they wanted to remain with him they remained very very loyal so every time you went, you, you, you had some more uh, uh, work that he'd completed that you were coming to publish? Or yes, that's right, because in those days, um, publishing was more complicated than it is now. You had to go through galley proofs, mm -hmm. page proofs, and each stage had to be checked out, you see, which involved... Nkrumah was meticulous about his writing. Every word had to be gone through, you know, at each stage. And if he wasn't sure about the word he would
turn to me sometimes and say, is that the best word to use in that context? It's your language, not mine. <laughs> so, you know, he was a stickler, really, but a great joy for a, an editor to work with because, you know, he insisted on the highest standard um, and the accuracy of everything he said. Yes, it involved a lot of toing and froing, which I think publishing processes now have simplified a bit, you know, you put it on disk and all this sort of thing. But in those days, there was a lot of checking to do. And um, I used to take supplies for him, you know, some of the medicines and things for his um, entourage they couldn't get in Conakry. So, as a <laughs> um, but I never spent more than about, I think the maximum was three weeks. You know, it was short, well, there were short visits. Three weeks there working with him and then Yes, that's right. I used to work every day in the villa. Mm -hmm. I had a desk there at the end of his veranda. He had this, it was an old colon French colonial style residence. It was quite a modest place where some, I suppose, French official would have stayed in colonial times. Right. And um, the secretary made that available for him. Mm -hmm. It was facing the sea, a lovely, lovely place, really. And I had the opportunity to meet people like Cabral, which was so interesting oh, for me. Cabral. Yes, Alcar Cabral was a frequent visitor there because he was fighting this guerrilla war in Portuguese Guinea at the time. And one of the books that Nkrumah was working on in Conakry was the Handbook of Revolutionary Warfare. And <laughs> I think Cabral was very interested in that and probably contributed quite a bit to the ideas in that book. Oh, Cabral was a, a lovely person, spoke fluent English, and they, oh, I mean, he was in and out an awful lot, as were other um, guerrillas, you know, from other parts of Africa. He kept in touch with freedom fighters from other parts of Africa as well. And he was very busy in those days. Yes. Writing a lot, having meetings. That's and I right. Think he also published uh, some of the correspondence, didn't he? Yes. Correspondence, yes. Yes, that's right, in the Conakry years. That's only a, a small selection, really. But he had a huge um, mail coming in every day from supporters all over the world. That's what I tried to show in my book on the Conakry years, but I could only give a small part of it, really. So his um, secretaries were kept very, very busy dealing with the mail, not to mention the cables and things that came in, you see, as well. So let's roll forward a little bit to Romania towards the end, and then we'll go back to mm -hmm. you going back to Conakry to, yeah. Yes. So mm -hmm. then one day you hear it's not very well. Mm -hmm. One day you go and it's okay, next time you go it's not very well. well I noticed from well, he, everything seemed to be pretty well all right till 1968. He was in terrific health then. Although I was a bit uneasy because within six months of his arrival in Conakry, the cook that he relied on so much and did all his food for him, um, which he always travelled with Amoa, I think his name was, or Amua, I'm not sure. However. Um, he was dead within six months. And he, yes, he was a fit man. I think, <laughs> I think he was um, helped on his way, to tell you the truth. But after that, um, Nkrumah's food was not safe, really. The various cooks came out from Conakry and so on. I can't prove any of this, but I have a strong suspicion that um, he, Nkrumah was poisoned in the end in a slow, nasty sort of way. 
but um, Amoa was probably the first casualty, I think, because he was a fit man, and then suddenly he, he's vomiting, he's unwell, he's taken to hospital, and they said, oh, he's got, he's got cancer, you know, and he's dead within six months. It was really inexplicable, but after that, it was a, I, I felt very concerned, really. There was no check on his food, really. Cooks were coming up from Conakry, and of course, in those days, the American embassy was open. I heard since, I didn't know at the time, that one of the cooks that came had been working at the American embassy. But he was very fit till about 1968. Then I began to notice his losing weight. Um, inexplicably, he seemed to be eating all right, but he, he wasn't so well um, as he had been. So by 6970 he, he was losing weight, yes, and he was having stomach upsets. He never had trouble like that before. But he was a very fit man through it. Very fit, yes. Um, I think that one of the Vietnamese or Chinese doctors, uh, I think it was a Vietnamese doctor that attended him mostly when he was in Conakry, he said he had the blood pressure of a young man, uh, you know, when he was first there, but there was this rather slow deterioration and quite noticeably about 1970, he was definitely a sick man and he wanted to really to get a medical checkup in um, Moscow because he had great faith in Russian medicine and he didn't want obviously to go anywhere in the West. Um, but it was the unfortunate time because the Russians were hobnobbing with the West. It was a time of detente. Yes. They'd opened an embassy in Accra and he was told that it would be inopportune was the word they used for him to travel to Moscow for a checkup but they could recommend a very good clinic in Bucharest and Ceausescu was okay. there, uh, you know, um, an ally really of the Russians at the time. So he went, he went there, um, but by that time he, he was a, a very sick man. So by 71 he had to check into the hospital or he... he, he, he no, but um, in the autumn really of 1971 he went to Bucharest for really for a checkup, but um, he died there unfortunately. Yes, yes. Following April, he was he was by that time seriously ill. So you saw him you saw him once or twice in, in, in Bucharest. Bucharest? Yeah. Yes, I went three times there three times. actually. Yes. Mm. And each time you saw that he was deteriorating. Oh yes. Well, I, I got a terrible shock when I, my first visit there. But he had warned me, typical of him, he, he phoned up and said, um, we must be courageous, I'm not as you remember me. And I thought, I, what exactly does he mean? He's probably gone, his hair's gone white or something. But I got a terrible shock when I saw him. He was sitting up in, in a chair his legs were terribly swollen. He said he'd been sitting there for six weeks because he was too painful to lie down. And um, he wasn't. They brought a, a sort of light meal, but um, he didn't obviously didn't fancy any of it. And uh, I couldn't get any sense out of the doctor there. No, they wouldn't tell me. I said, well, he had a couple of Ghanaians from his entourage that went with him mm. to Bucharest. Uh, wonderful people. Um, Quam was one, 
was the other one? Oh, Yamike was there as well. Okay. You know, his nephew that had been with him in Conakry and always travelled with him. And they said, we can't find out. They won't tell us what's, what's wrong with him. Perhaps you can find out. So I asked if I could see the um, doctor in charge. You know, not in Nkrumah's presence, of course. And he said, are you, the, are you his wife? And I said, no, I'm not his wife, but I'm his publisher. And I'm very concerned about, mm. you know, his health. And so he flannelled a bit. He, he didn't tell me what. He said, um, if we'd seen him two years ago, maybe we could have done something, but we can't. There's nothing we can do now. So I said, well, is it cancer, you see? Because a lot of people were saying, it was in the press here that he'd got cancer. And the doctor didn't say no he just said oh why does everyone talk about cancer but he said it's all over him and I said well what is all over him I couldn't get anything out of it. I don't know what they made of it but um, I still maintain I think he was poisoned That's all, all, uh, this is very um what is the writing in, 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 in Bucharest That's well we were when um, in 1971 when he left there um, Revolutionary Path, his last book, was in process, really. I mean, it was being compiled. It wasn't actually in the process of publication. But it, as you probably know, it was uh, to be a book of major speeches with introductory passages. And of course, there'd been people writing into him <laughs> saying, it'd be nice to have a book with, that contains all the important... Um, speeches and things and to take account of what he'd written in Conakry so he thought that was a good idea it was his choice of title that again this is very typical of his modesty because he said first of all call it, I think appropriate title would be my revolutionary path then he said no cut out the my revolutionary path that was very typical yes the, it was pretty well complete by the time he went to Bucharest, but they hadn't, the conclusion wasn't finished, and that's what was finished, well, in the last few weeks of his life. He didn't write it, of course. He dictated it to me. So as he was lying on his bed? Yes, bed. when he was on his bed, on his deathbed, as it he turned out. Yes, he was telling me what he wanted in it. And then um, I was writing it down, you see, and then he said, read it to me. So I read it out to him, and he said, I could add more, but not now, because I think he was in awful pain, he had another injection. And frankly, I didn't feel I could press him anymore the next day when I saw him, because well, he was, he was so ill. In fact, I think he'd said it all, reading it through, I can't think what he could have wanted to add to it, it's all there. I, I, so now there's the... So the, the next time you hear, he's gone. He's departed his life, as it yes. And mm. then you set about rescuing his papers and his, uh, mm. well, personal, his books from Conakry. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, well, I think realizing he was very seriously ill towards the end of 1970, he, and probably realizing by then that he was not going to get back to Accra, mm. He wanted to safeguard the future of his book, so he made a will in Conakry, um, leaving me in charge of his copyright and his published and unpublished papers and books. And he got, 
it properly witnessed and everything and I had to get an English lawyer to witness it for him and he had it um, signed in Conakry legally um, so that was very fortunate and a great foresight of his really because I might have had problems big, big, big problem. yeah saying what right you know but he had appointed me as literary secretary and so I had the permission to um, keep his books in print obviously there were going to be no more books but the important thing was to keep his books in print that was another purpose of setting up Panaf because the books he wrote before the coup um, the publishers the London publishers were going to pulp their remaining stock yeah it was it was terrible they thought there wouldn't be any demand for them totally underestimated his political stature and so on so the purpose of Panhaf was to keep those titles in print and also to print the new books he was to write in Guinea. There were some very important books, of course, before the coup. You see, Africa Must Unite, and Neocolonialism, two of his major works. Well, Africa Must Unite, I mean, the title says it all, and that message is still valid today. But Neocolonialism was <laughs> in part responsible for the coup. <laughs> because it exposed, you know, the workings of international finance capital in Africa, actually gave charts showing the, the network of these big foreign companies that were exploiting Africa's resources. And that was probably the final straw in deciding this dangerous man has got to be removed, you know. <laughs> we cannot have Africa united or in control of its own resources. And so that was a factor because it had such an impact in America. The American government immediately stopped aid to Ghana when that book really? was published, yes, and lodged a very strong diplomatic um, uh, complaint, you know, through their embassy in Accra, complaining about the book. I don't know any other book, really, that has created such a, a political stir as that one. Challenge of the Congo? <laughs> well, that wasn't perceived as such a great threat. You see, it was concentrated on the Congo. It did expose Union Minier, you know, and how the Belgian company had um, exploited the Congo's wealth. But this book was really dynamite. <laughs> and, um, but it was the final straw in a big build-up that had been going on for some time against his policies and especially his pan-Africanism which was perceived as a great threat. I think it is still perceived as a threat because once Africa is united it'll be in control of its own resources and that's the last thing really that these economic interests want. What kind of audience do you think Kwame Nkrumah had in mind when he was writing? What kind of audience do you think he had in mind? Well, it wasn't just for the Ghanaian public. <laughs> it, was a, it was a global thing because he regarded what well, people called his political philosophy in Krumerism, but he regarded it as um, a global um, movement. And it, it still is very much so today, I think. Um, because the problems of Ghana and Africa as a whole are replicated in the Far East. There's still, it's still ongoing in various parts of Africa and in South America. These are the great areas, you know. No, he wasn't right. Basically, he had in mind, obviously, the, the Pan-African uh, readership, but it was a global thing, which, being a statesman that he was, his vision 
incorporated as a sort of global um, context. And if you look at his friends and his contacts, you've got Castro, you've got Nehru, Sukarno, the, uh, Chuck, yes, yes, that's right, I mentioned him. Um, Castro was a big factor. So he, he was a global figure while he was in power in Ghana, and that didn't go just because he'd gone to Conakry. A little bit about uh, the, actual, the actual act of getting his letters and papers from Conakry and getting them onward to... to, to oh, that was hours. quite a problem, yes. After um, the secretary managed to stay in power a few years after Nkrumah died, um, but he was eventually overthrown in a coup, again under very suspicious circumstances. And I was worried at the time because I thought, what's going to happen with a military regime there and so on? To the correspondence files and all this historical material, which I knew must be still in Villa Silly. But I thought that at least, you know, the material there would be put either in a safe place or it would be guarded in that villa. Uh, I, didn't, I underestimated really the <laughs> what could happen there. But um, after Secretary had gone, there was a military regime, of course, and I couldn't get a visa or anything to go, but I wanted to go as his literary executives to see what had survived and uh, make a list of everything that was there and so on, not necessarily to bring it back. But in the end, I had to go without a visa and just risked it. it was 1987. Um, and it was just as well I went, actually. But I took a bit of a, a risk, yeah, to say yeah. the least. <laughs> um, because camera, the camera sana, the Guinea protocol officer that had been in charge at Villa City, you know, interpreting for Nkrumah and all this sort of thing, he was, of course, out of power. He was nobody. He was a very big man under Secretary's government. He was, in fact, Secretary's right-hand man that he um, drafted to serve Nkrumah. Um, he was just a nobody, but I, uh, he wrote me a, an air letter in 1980, the end of 86 or beginning of 87, out of the blue, because I was pondering how on earth I'm going to get out there. No Guinea embassy in London, and I couldn't get any contact from their Paris embassy. They didn't want to know he's any connection with Nkrumah or Secretary, and they wanted to know what my purpose of going there was. So it was a, there was a problem. Anyhow, fortunately I had this letter from Kamala Sana and he, he put a box number so I immediately wrote back and said I would like to come and just, you know, check to see what was still surviving and so on. He said he would, it was difficult, um, but he would meet me. So I couldn't get a visa, I decided to go without one. Um, Very brave. <laughs> well, it was a bit risky. When I got to Paris, of course, you had to change planes in Paris. They said, where's your visa for Guinea? I said, I haven't got one, but I'm afraid I told a white lie. I said, I'm being met by government officials. <laughs> it's all right, so they passed me anyhow. They were glad to have somebody to travel on Air Africa, I think. Towards the end, it stopped several times. Myself and two Lebanese businessmen were the only people that wanted to go on to Conakry. They all got off at Nourchat or somewhere, you know, in between. 
No, no, and especially, uh, she's obviously not a tourist. You don't go to Conakry for tourism. <laughs> but I got, had a big problem when I arrived, actually. I don't know whether you want to hear all this. Yeah, not all. <laughs> <laughs> well, just, I'll try and make it brief. Yeah. But, um, yes, it was a problem because, you know, queuing up uh, to, to go through the... Um, formalities, the checks, I immediately looked at my passport, where's your visa, you see, and I said, I haven't been able to get one. They said, well, wait over there, you see, and I thought, oh, Lord. It was the end of the day, and, and I thought, I'm just going to be put on the return flight back, you know, without a visa. But fortunately, camera did turn up, but he'd had trouble getting some old taxi or something to get there. He was really looking so down and out, poor camera. But anyhow, he turned up, and he came and spoke to them in French, and they said, he said he would take charge of me and not to worry and all. But of course they didn't recognize him and he was a man of no importance then. But they said they would have to keep my passport and I would have to get a, a visa from the home office or whatever in Conakry before they would return my passport. So it was a bit worrying actually. I had to leave the airport without my passport. But Cameron managed to get um, a photographer that got a bit of film left and we long story but he managed to get it so but then I getting to see the papers was uh, see what was left in the Villa Silly was a problem because the military had taken over he said camera told me that it was filled with soldiers and but he thought the files and everything had been packed into tea boxes and sealed and he would I want I mustn't go near he said you must lie low mm. here in Conakry, Lilo, I will see if I can, you know, see them and, and bring them to you. Um, fortunately, he said, the one of the, the commander there mm. at the garrison in Villa Silly mm. came from his village okay. and he might be able to arrange something. Right. So, long story mm. short, in two or three days, he um, managed to bring the, the stuff to his little bungalow I was staying in a, a very grotty little hotel, no air conditioning or anything, it was terrible in, in Conakry. But anyhow, I went there to his place during the day and he brought the stuff there, but it was just thrown in the old house. The soldier had broken into the boxes looking for valuables, I suppose, and they didn't think papers were valuable, of course. No, soldiers for you, but I'm glad they didn't think so, but they hadn't bothered sealing them or anything so they'd been exposed to insects and all this sort of I was just in time really but I realized I'd have to bring them back with me so I had to give camera some money to go and buy a suitcase um, in the market and I couldn't bring I brought all the correspondence files back I couldn't bring all his little library back he had a small library of books there that he'd collected during the years most ones I'd sent or taken with me and he always annotated his books and so I had to sort through the ones that he had actually written in because I thought these would be valuable for students to see what comments or what he had marked as important I was able to bring those back and his correspondence files but I had to leave some that hadn't got any marking the camera would go back and secure them you think? Yes, he brought everything that was, had been packed in these boxes he had packed them actually when Nkrumah died and he returned um, you know, Nkuma had a state funeral in Conakry. Um, so he, camera came back with the body to, um, to, 
to well to Conakry. To Conakry. Yes, that's yeah, right. Sorry. Yes, that's right. Yes, they wanted me to go, but I said no. I'm I go to, to London from Bucharest and carry on with the books. I'm you know if I'd been his wife or something, been different. But I said no. He would wish me to ensure the safety of his books. It wasn't appropriate for me to go. I thought his wife from Fatty would go. Yes, she didn't. Yes, she did go. Yeah. Why did you choose Howard University as the 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 place? Well. Yeah. Some of the stuff I thought really should be placed into safe hands, especially the, the correspondence files that had damage from mice that actually got into one of the boxes and they'd eaten the edges of the files and so on. They need, it needed expert paper care, you see. And I thought, well, there was nowhere in Africa that I could think of that had got the facilities and proper air conditioning and this, that and the other, paper experts. And I thought the materials should be put on disk and all this sort of thing available to scholars. So the first thought was um, Howard University, which is the biggest black university in the world and got all the expertise in the world. And they had a research um, centre, Morland Spingarn Research Centre. So I wrote to them first and um, no, no, I didn't write them first. That's right. I went out to see them. That's right, yes, to see if I thought it was suitable. Yes, the sequence, forgive me, but it's a long time ago now. Uh, I think I had made the contact, that's right. And then I decided to go and see for myself. And I was really very pleased with what I saw. And first thing you notice going into the mall and spin gone great pictures and groomers they had all his books in their library. And the students, of course, were very... Um, enthusiastic supporters of Nkrumah. In fact, Howard University um, tried to get him to be, um, you know, take a, a position at Howard University during the Conakry years. Some sort of honorary th um, something or other. But, it, you know, they recognized that his importance on. So it was a suitable place to deposit, you know, some of the material that couldn't um, wait. So they've got, they've got um, some very important material there. What do you think was Nkrumah's uh, greatest gift to Africa? What, what, if you could summarize? Oh, I think his pan-African vision of a united continent. That was behind all his thinking and all his writing. Always talking about it. Because he thought that the um, position of the ordinary people in Africa could not improve until the continent was united and um, was in control of its own house, in other words. First thing always on his mind was the political kingdom, you see. <laughs> you know, you remember he emphasized that all the time. Until you have political control, you're in control of your own house, you can forget about your welfare, because other people will be coming in to take that, especially a, a rich continent like Africa. It used to drive him mad when people talked about poverty in Africa. I mean, he knew, obviously, the African people were poor, but he said people are mixing up. The continent is not poor. It's the richest continent yes. in the world with the poorest people. So something has to be wrong. You've got to ask the question, why is this the case? So all his writings really have this in, in view, really, the pan-African um, context. His book, Challenge of the Congo, it, the subtitle is... Um, Oh, I can't remember the exact detail, but it, it's about the similar troubles in independent states, you know, that are not in control of their 
resources and the challenge of the Congo is to um, highlight the example of what had happened there um, of course Union Mini had been exploiting you know, its resources were not benefiting the people of the Congo but there's always this pan-African um, vision that's, that's the greatest I think how does, it, how does it feel to have worked so closely to... How, what? how does it feel to have worked so closely to... Well, it's a tremendous honor. I mean, for a historian to meet with someone who's making history and then to be play a very minor part in it, you know, after the coup, um, that was perhaps the, the best experience, really, of the whole time because he had more time to reflect there. We had long conversations, you know, in Villa Silly that wouldn't have been possible while he was in government and he was too busy, you know, it was mostly checking his books and the texts of his books, but we had time to talk about what was going on in the world and all this sort of thing. I got to know him much better after 66. But it was a tragedy for the whole of Africa, really, that um, I think Kaunda is a bit of a gloomy person, but he said Africa will never recover from it. I think they will, because his vision has lived on. But it has, did set back the clock in Africa, there's no doubt about it. Before the coup, in Flagstaff House, in the sort of waiting room, adjoining his office there, waiting to go in. And sometimes I'd been there with ambassadors and important people sitting there, and he would send for me first, you see, because he, his books were so important, he wanted to get that done, and really I got some nasty looks from some of these people that thought, you know, who's this blooming woman going in ahead of us, I'm a big cheese here, you know, <laughs> but he, total disregard for that sort of thing. No standing on ceremony at all, no. And the ability to make everybody in the party or yeah. in the circle feel that they were important and their role in history was as important as his. Yeah. I, I well, Erica told me once that she had this little office, you see, adjoining his in Flagstaff House, and she was very amused. At cabinet meeting, she said all she could hear was roars of laughter, you know, and it was always a jolly occasion. Mm. Yeah, he, he, I'm, I've never seen him. Mm. He, he couldn't stand people that put on airs at all. But in practice, he carried out in practice his door was open to anyone you know market women would come Erica used to get a bit concerned because for his security after a while because you know there, there was a bit of discontent in the country from yes, certain quarters yeah. and there were two bomb incidents Indeed. you remember Indeed, yeah. his life was in danger and she thought it was dangerous for these people coming out but he, he liked shutting the door on anyone but after a while, his security people he began to take control and said, we can't go on like this, any Tom, Dick and Harry coming, but it wasn't his wish to be shielded from anyone. You wanted to speak about the last time you saw him in Ghana. Oh, yes. Before he left for Hanoi. That's a very strong memory I have, yes. There was a, a lot of talk of coups at that time because in January, um, the last time I saw him was in February, but in January there'd been a coup in Nigeria and Balewa's government had been overthrown. So it was, the talk was on people's lips, it was a dangerous sort of time. 
And I got the feeling for the first time, usually when I arrived on my trips there, and I can't remember the exact number of times I went before the coup, but it was very often, um, I'd always felt sort of elated <laughs> getting out of the aircraft. And there was a sort of happy atmosphere, you know, children, school children going to school with their satchels. It, it seemed to be a happy time, building going on, Tema Highway being built. But that last visit, there was a bit of unease, and even with the Volta opening, there was a big dinner they had, I think it was the night before. Anyhow, Kaiser was there, one of the people that had helped with financing the Volta Dam, and the lights suddenly all went out. And I thought, this is very odd. Um, so we were in total darkness, we were all sitting there, you know, this big occasion, masses of tables, hundreds of people there, closing cars, but they came on again. I, I thought, <laughs> I hope that's not a, a no-men, but people were a bit jumpy, and especially um, those close to him, even his wife, didn't want him to leave the country, because there were talk of coups, and there were a bit of discontent with shortages of various food. It's part of the economic sanctions that were being applied insidiously with Ghana. Do you remember the... Welcome back, and uh, that was an interview uh, with Jules Milne, uh, the research assistant for Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, uh, who continued uh, his legacy uh, through his writings and publications uh, long after uh, his, of course, uh, in 1972 on April the 27th. And that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. I am the host, Abayomi Azikwe. If you'd like to have access to this program, uh, just go uh, to our website at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com uh, to read the Pan-African Newswire. To, to listen to the Pan-African Journal, this program and over 1,200 other archived editions of the Pan-African uh, Journal, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network, that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We're going to close out with the music of saxophonist and clarinetist uh, Eric Dawson uh, with the album entitled Far Cry. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.